I am honored to be able to welcome um, you know, a, a figure who was introduced last night at Brazenose College as the foremost journalist of Burma and Southeast Asia, which I think made him cringe. But, uh, but it's a title that, that uh, is, is um, pretty well earned. And so Bertel Lintner has been uh, a journalist in uh, Southeast Asia and in Asia since 1975. He's written for Far Eastern Economic Review for uh, Jane's Information Group. Uh, as you all know, has published multiple books um, on Burma. Is still <coughs> there in the country. Um, on a regular basis uh, as a journalist, but also as a, as a teacher and a, as a trainer and has been doing a lot of really exciting work training a younger generation of, of journalists in, in Myanmar today. Um, and and I'm, I'm particularly uh, happy that as he does this, this training, I mean, he's somebody who can look back to uh, previous, previous ages of journalism in the country and kind of draw on that prestige as well and draw on a lot of the local expertise as he trains these, these young journalists. Um, and he's going to talk to us today uh, about Burma in its broader sort of geopolitical context, specifically uh, the elephant in the room every time we talk about uh, Burma, Myanmar, which is China. Uh, so uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Bertel Lintner. Well, thank you very much. And I hope you can hear me. If you can't, then let me know. Well, <clears throat> in order to understand what's happening in the country right now, what it's likely to happen over the next you know, couple of years, I think it's very important that we go back a few years in time. And uh, as you know, in 2008, there was an absolutely fraudulent referendum about a new constitution, a constitution that would guarantee you know, supreme power to the military. And uh, in some constituencies, I think even 102, 102, 101 and 102 percent voted for this new constitution. <laughs> so obviously it wasn't really what one would call a free and fair referendum, right? Uh, after that followed an election in 2010, in November, were equally fraudulent. Uh, the military supported USDP. The Union Solidarity Development Party won like 80% of the seats and the votes and all that. And nobody really believed that that was true. But then, in 2011, some very strange things began to happen. The new president, supposedly civilian, but he was a general who just put on a gong bong and a lunge and became a civilian. He was a general, they say. Started uh, <coughs> releasing political prisoners. Uh, censorship was eased. A lot of foreign people, foreign personalities have been on blacklisted for years, including myself, were taken off that blacklist. Never was wondering what is going on here. I don't want to sound like uh, Trump here, but I mean, you understand what I mean. <laughs> so <clears throat> when uh, this was happening, and I was trying to make sense of it, a friend in the establishment leaked this document to me. He said, read this, and then you understand why this is happening. And I was astonished. This is only the first page of a 350-page dossier, which was written and compiled at the Defense Services Institute, Institute and Academy in the Pinovin Maimyo. It's written by Shubomoji Aungchola. I don't know if this person exists, or if it is, if it was a committee of people, more li likely a committee. Every page is cla stamped classified. And what is the title of this study? It's a study of relations between Myanmar and America. It was endorsed by Sina General Thanchwe, so we're not just a maverick, you know, writing things. And here, signed by all the 
main principal of the Defense Service Academy and other dignitaries that you know there. And it goes through Myanmar's relationship with all its neighbors. Here's Thailand. Thaksin was the uh, was the prime minister at that time. It talks about India, relations with India, but more precisely, relations with the United States. And they, they write that in the past, relations between America and uh, and Myanmar uh, were actually quite good. Here we got Richard Nixon when he was vice president visiting Burma, shaking hands with General Nguyen, at that time Commander-in-Chief for the Defense Services. And here's a funny picture which was not part of the dossier, but included anyway. <laughs> this is uh, <coughs> Vice President Nixon just stuck in the Burmese costume. I thought he looked rather charming <laughs> there as well. <laughs> so in short, relations were pretty good. But then came the horrible thing, the uprising in 1988. And suddenly, <coughs> America was the first country to come out and condemn the massacre that took place in Rangoon at that time. And thousands of demonstrators demanding a return to democracy were gunned down by the military. And <coughs> here we see Gertrude Levin, the American ambassador at that time, together with Aung San Suu Kyi and Congressman Stephen Solars. You know, they basically, we have a hearing, also have a meeting where the Mormon was the president at that time that really then the riot attack and said this is not the way you deal with civil unrest. You don't go out and machine gun people in the streets. There was also some concerns about the US aircraft carrier entering Burmese waters, so being very close to Burmese waters at the time. Actually it's nothing to do with the uprising. It was just uh, to keep an eye on things. But there was a fear in according to this dossier that America may even intervene in the conflict. The civil conflict that was you know <coughs> Spreading in Burma at that time in August and September. But then they go on <coughs> and say, yes, relations were very bad. Became very bad between America and, uh, and, uh, and Burma. But they go in here to identify various personalities who may have a different point of view. People who would be opposed to the sanctions that America uh, imposed on Burma after the Hate Act uprising. You can see here that David Strandberg is mentioned there, Priscilla Clapp, Senator John McCain, and uh, other people at the Georgetown University. They basically say that maybe we can talk to these people in order to improve relations. Uh, James Glad is mentioned here. It's rather embarrassing to have your name in this dossier. <laughs> you can see a lot of them ended up there. And they also say that <coughs> relations with the uh, that America doesn't always prioritize democracy and human rights, if anybody thought that. Uh, on the contrary, strategic interests are sometimes also very important in America's you know, security thinking. So they mentioned, for instance, uh, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, where Indonesia and Vietnam, at that time not being real democracies, but nevertheless, they were on the side of America towards the big enemy in Asia, China. And here they say, they come to the conclusion that it's a natural emergency. We're facing a major crisis in our country, in Burma, because of Chinese influence. We're becoming a Chinese colony. 
And in order to preserve our independence, we have to improve relations with the West. Otherwise, we will completely be swallowed up by China and end up in China's sphere of influence. And here's a very interesting thing. Do you know when this report was written or this dossier was written? In October 2004. So at that stage, that early, they were actually thinking of opening up to the West. And <clears throat> you may remember that in August 2004, the head of Burma's military intelligence, General Kinyon, was ousted. I didn't get it at the time. I thought it was just had to do with, you know, infighting within the ruling military establishment. Maybe Kinyon was becoming a little bit too corrupt or too, more, too powerful for his own good. But I'm not convinced after reading this that this had a lot to do with the relation with China because Kinyon was seen as China's man in Burma. He was ousted in August 2004. October 2004, two months later, this dossier is published within and distributed within a limited number of people in the military establishment in the country. So here they say, how then to improve relations with with the United States in order to lessen our dependence on China? They come up with a very smart idea. <coughs> MIAs, missing in action. Who are the American missing in action in Burma? The pilots who flew over the hump during World War II. Because yeah. it seemed like a very far-fetched idea to come up with, but very smart. Just think of North Korea. <coughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't followed that closely in, in recent years, but for many years, America was paying vast amounts to the North Korean government to get access to crash sites and, and battle sites in North Korea to retrieve uh, <coughs> you know, bones and other things left from MIAs who died during the Korean War in the early 50s. But here it said a lot of American pilots actually disappeared in Burma during World War II. They crashed and the remnants were never found. So therefore, we should invite war veterans to come and have a look at the crash sites. And that's what we see here, the two newspaper clippings. <coughs> and here, a map identifying crash sites, American planes arriving in Burma for the first time in years, and they are looking for MIAs. This is how relations were established, not to begin with. And here they go on to talk about Vietnam and Indonesia again. Come down Bay, let's bygones be bygones. We can become good friends again if we play our cards cleverly. <coughs> when I read this, I was thinking of this article, which is not in the dossier, but it's from my own archives. It's from the Beijing Review, 1985, written by Panchi, the former Deputy Minister of Transport in China. I saw I spotted this article in the Beijing Review you know, many, many years ago. But I kept it because this is very interesting. China must have a plan. And this article talks about the development of economic development of China. But China being a very big sort of inland empire, really. But a comparatively short coastline is such a huge country. And when China started to modernize its economy, the coastal provinces took off immediately. Especially Guangdong and Fujian. <coughs> and the hinterland was lagging behind. And there was a danger here of, you know, that the disparity in income between the coastal provinces and inland could threaten China's political and economic stability. Therefore, this article concludes, China has to find outlets through other countries for exports. 
And China's economy, you know, when it was, was, it was it still is very much export-driven. They're dependent on export to other countries. So the country's conclusion that this Yunnan province is here, Yunnan, Sichuan, Guangzhou, would have to find an outlet to the sea for export through Burma, using Burma's waterways, railways, and roads. And this was written in 1985, at the time when all the border areas here were controlled by various insurgent groups. The Communist Party of Burma, the Kachin Independence Army, there's only a tiny little corridor here controlled by the Burmese government. But nevertheless, the Chinese were thinking way ahead here. And this was the plan for the future. And when I, <coughs> a couple of years after this, I had lunch with a senior advisor to Hu Yintao, the Chinese president at the time. And I asked him <coughs> that I have a theory about your interest in Burma. And I mentioned this, that I believe that you need an outside outlet for, for exports through Burma. Do you want to use Burma's roads, railways, waterways, to make sure that the inland, the landlocked inland provinces of your country, that they will catch up with developments in the coastal provinces? And he said, yeah, absolutely. They're exactly what, what you're thinking. But more, more than that, he said, <coughs> it's not just an outlet, it's also an inlet. So I said, an inlet for what? And he said, we are no longer self-sufficient in fossil fuel, in oil, petrol. We have to import oil from um, the republics of the former Soviet Central Asia. And then he laughed and said, that's why we are totally against vigor independence. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but uh, most of the oil is still coming from the Middle, uh, from the middle East. And in all, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the Straits of Malacca. Because in the case of a future conflict with the United States, those are the exact words that he used, the America can block the Straits of Malacca. So we're not afraid of Singapore, but the US Navy has access to Singapore by treaty. They can block the Straits of Malacca. He didn't say what kind of conflict there would be, but you can imagine, let's say that <coughs> mainland China decides to invade Taiwan. But treaty the United States has to defend Taiwan. I don't think they would lob missiles into Shanghai and Beijing, not even if Donald Rumsfeld was the defense, Secretary of Defense. But <coughs> they would probably try to block the Straits of Malacca, to, to block the, the, the supply of, of oil, like, like America did with Japan in World War II. So he said, in case the Americans block the Straits of Malacca, we have to, we're going to build a pipeline through Burma to import oil. And I thought, this is madness. He can't be serious, but he was. That is exactly what happened many years later. But he was also part of the plan at the very early stage. <clears throat> Here's the article, 2nd of September 1985. You mentioned Michina, Lashio, the the railways were bad in Burma, but China can fix that. And the, the waterways, the roads. But he doesn't mention anything about insurgents controlling the border areas. So that was the problem that obviously had to solve as well. So there we have <coughs> China's interest in, in Burma. And in 1988, after the uprising and the sanctions and the boycotts that the West imposed at the time, Burma turned to China for help, for loans, investment, trade, and as a source of military supplies. So <clears throat> you can say that China helped Burma's military regime 
survive after the 88 uprising. It probably would not have happened unless China had stepped in and done all that. And Ed actually then has to show that the Chinese also can be very flexible when it comes to these issues. That national security is more important than what's happening you know, politically in other countries. So <clears throat> this was actually, when I met this senior advisor to Huyen Tao, that was shortly after the referendum for independence in East Timor. So I asked him, okay, if this is what you think, what you, then you must be interested in stability, continuity in Burma. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So therefore, you support the military regime. He said, yeah, we do. So I said, yes, but sometimes unexpected things happen, things you could never imagine. Like, I said, if anyone 10 years ago had said that um, <clears throat> East Timor was going to become an independent country, people were not, not taking that person seriously. So I said, what will you do if something unexpected happened in, in Burma? For instance, Aung San Suu Kyi is Burma's president tomorrow. What is China going to do? And he said, yes, but we admire Aung San Suu Kyi. We think she's a fantastic woman. We would definitely support her. So <clears throat> they would definitely adjust to changing conditions if such a thing happened. Because these economic interests, these strategic interests, are far more important, really, than who is actually in power in, in Burma. They would prefer a military government, but if there's no military government, it would certainly adjust to you know, the new realities. But then came this <coughs> document from 2008. And this is about a trip <coughs> that Durash Weman, who was then number three in the military junta, which changed its name to the State Peace and Development Council, rather than the State Law and Order Restoration Council, it sounded a little bit too, you know, a bit of a mouthful. So <clears throat> this document is a, was leaked by someone in the foreign ministry who was really rather unhappy with his close relationship with China. So <clears throat> it's a, about a trip that Schwemann and the military delegation from Burma undertook to not only China but also North Korea in November 2008. Here they are, they just arrived in Beijing. Have you look at the Tiananmen Square? <coughs> and they signed agreements with um, high ranking Chinese military officers. So there's Rush Women here. The flags of China, Burma. Photo up there. And nice dinner, of course. And here, more photo ops. More MOUs being signed. They have a trip up to the Great Wall and they have another bank banquet with nice food. And here they're changing presidents. Obviously, relations were very close here at this stage. But underneath, there was this discontent within the military that this is not good. We have to find an alternative to this. But here comes the very interesting part of it. I'm ju jumping a bit here. Because they went from Beijing to North Korea, they're on their way back. Chairman and his military delegation stopped in Kunming, in Yunnan, Kunming Army Academy. <coughs> he was received by full owners, of course, as a visiting dignitary from the armed forces of a neighboring country. Like this. He's still in Kunming. Here, he's watching the training, the special forces. Of the people of the British Army? Yeah, more. But then, 
He went to see how they live. The living quarters. It's a bit odd, isn't it? Doesn't say anything. But here, how to sleep. Why would he be interested in that? Then came this picture, and I thought, aha, that's why he went there. <coughs> here, he's shaking hands with this guy here. They're talking. What language do they talk? Do they speak? Shreema doesn't speak Chinese. Do these boys look really Chinese to you? These are Burmese cadets <coughs> undergoing training at a special warfare training facility in Kunming. The first time any foreign country really trained Burmese soldiers for many, many years. This is not mentioned here, but it's very clear what is going on. And actually, I <coughs> had a meeting with a minister in the, the present Burmese government. I can say who he was, because he was standing public, there was nothing secret about it. It was the information minister, Yeto. I met him in Oslo. And I said, look, I said, so I said you, you know these pictures about Durash Freeman's trip to China? When he went back to Burma and Stockholm and Kuming on the way, uh, those boys he you know, talked to and went to visit at that time, those were your boys, right? And the information said, yeah, but not all of them. Well, <laughs> 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 he realized he said too much. But there was a confirmation I needed. But then came the big thing. Schwemann's visit to North Korea. Here, the tower with the Yuchi area in Pyongyang. The Burmese delegation there. And here, a bit, a bit difficult to see, but here's a map of Burma, as you can see, right? There were a lot of lights around Rangoon here. So what is it that the North Koreans are offering the Burmese here? It's this. This is the Air, Air Force Base. And here, shaking hands with North Korean officials. Right on. They signed an agreement that North Korea would supply <coughs> radar to the Burmese military, especially to protect the, bo the, the coastal area as a case of an American invasion, no? as if that would ever, ever happen to be the case. But nevertheless, that's what they did. And <coughs> here, this is more from the Burmese were supposed to take these pictures, so when they took them through the car window, I think the North Koreans were kind of angry when they saw these pictures being leaked. Yeah, we'll go back there. Yeah, then they also went to the Scud Missile Factory. They look at missiles. So they signed an MOU with North Korea, whereby North Korea would help North Burma develop a Scud type missile. And not long after this, even before this, there were North Korean technicians working at various defense facilities in Burma. This, of course, caused an enormous alarm bells to ring in Washington. What is going on here? I was invited to a conference <coughs> at the National Defense University in Washington at this time. I was the only American who was there, invited. I cannot say who said what, because there was Chatham House as rules. But I can tell you in general terms what was being discussed. <coughs> there was relations between Burma and North Korea. I didn't hear the words democracy and human rights being mentioned even once during this conference. Everything was about how can we stop this alliance between Burma and North Korea. 
The United States did not want to have a North Korean ally smack in the middle of South and Southeast Asia. And this was, the Americas was a threat to regional stability and security. And at this conference, the conclusion was that we have to open up some kind of talks with the Burmese government. We could no longer afford to keep them isolated. Because if we do, we're just pushing them into the hands of China, that's bad. North Korea, unacceptable. And that was basically the, what the American government concluded long before the 2010 election and what happened in 2011. There's been a lot of speculations whether North Korea has been involved in <coughs> uh, Burma's nuclear program, because Burma did have a nuclear program at one stage. But that's nonsense. <coughs> it's what I've been able to, to confirm through a number of sources is uh, that North Korea has helped the Burmese with radar facilities, tunneling, you know, underground bunkers, and missile development, but not nuclear research at all. Uh, they did send a lot of people to Russia to study nuclear technology and other sort of related technologies as well. And here's two various army officers in civilian clothes in Russia doing exactly that. Yeah, again, outside the research institute in Russia. Do you think the Russians really taught them how to make a nuclear bomb? Of course not. <laughs> Russia was just interested in collecting the school fees. And they taught them something rather useless instead. So they spent a year or two or three in Russia studying nothing that they really needed. Actually, one of these guys who went to Russia is a good friend of mine now. He's come back and he's left the military. And he's now living in a Western country in Europe. And I asked him, so what, what is totally wasted your time in Russia? He said, not really, because, uh, you know, I learned to speak Russian. And I'm a very heavy smoker. So now I know how to buy cigarettes from the Russian black marketeers in this town. Mm -hmm. So that's what, that's what he put with him, the lasting impact of his stay three years in Moscow. But you see here, I mean, are they really interested even in the Burmese? This guy seems to be more interested in the photographer than in what was actually teaching them at this research institute in Russia. But at one stage, I think, if you take it all together, more than 1,000 cadets for Burma have undergone some kind of training in, in Russia. But that included nuclear research as well, even if the Russians didn't tell them anything really important. But North Korea, no. Here you have what the North Koreans did. This is the entrance to a big underground facility uh, in Angban, in the Shan States. Leads into bunkers and things underground. Uh, <coughs> this is a picture of the easy head of the North Korean uh, technical team to Burma. And his name is, surprise, surprise, Mr. Kim. And you can see he's, he's wearing a long jean. He's been there for many years. I was told that he speaks very good Burmese. I have cut out the pictures here because the person who gave me the picture is actually standing next to him. And here we have some younger North Korean technicians as well. And there you see the Burmese officer with his match flashes on the, on the shoulder. They are there and they were helping the Burmese military with the build underground 
facilities and to develop some kind of missile. Here we have entrance to another underground facility. I think this one is somewhere near Pinolwin. Here another one. And here is a drawing of an underground facility near Lepido, the new capital. In case of civil unrest or something like that, they can put a whole battalion of troops underground. They can park the tanks, APCs here. They have diesel, they have rice, they have, they have everything they need. Just remain underground for up to a month. And all this, these facilities exist, and they're still there. And they were help, built with North Korean assistance. <coughs> Here's another one. <coughs> this is near Pinoven. This is actually the secret entrance to a huge underground complex near Defense Services Academy. This is what looks underground. Main tunnel, hospital, service tunnel, storage room, uh, Buddhist temple, upper tunnel, storage room. It's uh, something quite remarkable. And they obviously did also study North Korean tunnels. North Korea is expert at building tunnels and underground facilities. I don't know if anyone has been to North Korea. Uh, I've been there. And if you fly from Beijing to Pyongyang, <coughs> you fly over mountains, you don't see a house, it's not a house in sight, but somewhere in the mountain, smoke is coming up. And you realize there's something you know, important inside that mountain. And there you have one of the tunnels that the North Koreans built under the demilitarized zone. So they are studying this kind of tunneling technique. And this is one of the things, this is from the army manual, Burmese army manual. Here, <coughs> you see how big this facility is. This is a truck, this entrance to an underground facility, again near Ongban in the Shan State. This was the first picture I got of <coughs> North Korean technicians arriving in Burma. This guy's here. And they came, this is also the army guest house in Nepido, the new capital. These guys here are wearing the uniform of the Myanmar Electrical Authority. They're supposed to build, you know, hydroelectric power stations. But it was more than that. Yes, there'd be power stations too, but only to supply electricity to all its underground facilities. So you can imagine how alarmed countries like America were when this was revealed. And it certainly realized that they had to do something more than just, you know, impose sanctions and boycotts on Burma. This is an underground tunnel again. And they go zigzag like this. So they think that if an Americans fire a missile, zoop, we hit the wall there. I showed this picture to a U.S. Air Force colonel. And I said, would your miss missiles sort of hit the wall over there? They said, no, not at all. They said, we've got smart missiles. They can find their way through these kind of tunnels. That is waste of concrete. <laughs> <laughs> this is a meeting room, underground, near Nepido. 2004 was almost built. And then again, you see this zigzag kind of thing. But they're sort of well ventilated with the air and so on, so you can keep a lot of people on the ground for long periods of time. Here's another one. This is near Pinolwin, Defense Services Academy. <coughs> okay, so what, how did North Burma pay for all this? Well, <coughs> 
both Burma and North Korea at this time couldn't really go through international monetary institutions like banks and so on or try to transfer money from you know HSBC to the you know, chartered bankers or whatever. It was impossible. So they established a kind of barter deal. And what, of course, Burma needed um, military supplies, missile technology, tunneling technology. And also they bought, they got from uh, North Korea new weapons as well, including howitzers. But the Burmans were already familiar with the Chinese-made howitzers. And the North Korean models are basically the same, but they're cheaper. They're not quite as good. Nevertheless. So that's, of course, what Burma wanted or needed. What did North Korea need? Food. So then the friend gave me all these documents from the Port Authority in Tilawa, the main container port. And some of them are from the Bangshu War in Rangoon as well. This is the arrival of North Korean ships in Burmese ports. This particular ship is called Envy Bocho. <coughs> and what did these ships carry? Well, according to the manifest, miscellaneous goods and construction equipment. Well, mm -hmm. But on the return journey, always rice and other foodstuffs. This was a very clever way. They established this kind of barter trade between Burma and North Korea. And sometimes there was not, in this particular note, handwritten, it says when Dumanga, North Korean ship, arrives in the port <coughs> to request uh, uh, someone from the DPRK embassy will be there and they request the total security the whole port area when the ship arrives but among these documents I found something also very puzzling this one for instance <coughs> permission to supply 150 crates of Myanmar brandy to Dumanga <coughs> We would be much obliged if we could kindly grant permission to supply 150 crates of Lima brandy to board the above vessel on the 17th of July 2009, as requested by the master. The deeper embassy will, will, you know, will be involved in this. I thought, what are they going to do with 150 crates of Lima brandy? There's more. This one. Here, another North Korean ship, Kanbaiksan, wants to have Lima vodka. What is this all about? <laughs> well, as you know, North Korea's embassies do not get any money from the foreign minister in Pyongyang. They have to be self-sufficient. And they, be, they have a long history of uh, selling duty-free liquor and other goods, luxury goods. I don't think anyone would like to buy Myanmar brandy and vodka. But you can always put it in different bottles, you know, Smirnoff or Napoleon, that sort of thing, and sell it. And this is the only explanation I have for this, because I can't imagine that they would be drinking 150 crates of Myanmar brand on the way back to Pyongyang. This was meant to be sold through the embassies as, you know, to raise money. And here's, yeah, name of the ship and Myanmar vodka. This is one of the missile training <coughs> facilities on the banks of the Irrawaddy River. And uh, it's a place called and here, this is what you see from the air. Underground, you have missile factories with North Korea technicians. Same thing again here. It's near Mimbu, the banks of the Irrawaddy River. 
Here's another one in the Arakan state. You can see a huge hydroelectric dam here. But none of the villages in this area have any electricity. It goes to this. Another top secret base, Sedotaya in Arakan. The Arakan border with the Bagwe uh, region. This is uh, one of the secret defense factories as well. And here you see the helicopter landing pads. <coughs> and this is where the Burmese army was developing new machinery and new weaponry with <coughs> the help of North Korea. So obviously, and I want to find out about this. I wrote about it extensively, the Asia Times at the time. And uh, I'm certain that at this time, security planners in Washington, and especially in the Pentagon and Langley, were really thinking of new ways of approaching the government in Burma. China, yes, made a problem, it's a concern, but the main thing, they would really tip the balance was North Korea. But if you look at it in a broader perspective, of course North Korea is not, not that much of a threat. But the main thing was really to get Burma on the side of the West in this new Cold War between the West and China. And then came what changed everything. This is the confluence of the Mecca and the Malika rivers, become the Irrawaddy. Here, a Chinese company was going to build a hydroelectric power station. They were going to flood 600 square kilometers of forest land in Kachin State. 90% of electricity was going to go to China. And what happened? A massive movement against this town. Over the whole country, not only Kachin State. <coughs> not for China, it says that. And then, you know what? It's not for China. Suddenly there was this movement against China in Burma, which is tolerated by the government. And on the 30th of September 2011, the day that everything changed in Burma, that is when the Thainzing government announced in the parliament in Nepado that we are suspending the Mitsong hydroelectric power program scheme. The China was taken aback. They were not informed about it before it happened. And that is when China began to reevaluate its Burma policy. Maybe we push Burma a little bit too far. Maybe we have to be a little bit more tactful here. But, of course, within a month, who was on an airplane, on a flight to Burma, if not Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. This was music to the Americans' ears. That's, of course, the American ambassador to Burma. But then, <coughs> this was not the only movement against Chinese, popular movement against Chinese investment in, in Burma and Chinese activities in Burma. The other one was at the copper mine at a place called Epadown, northwest of Naimio. And there, there was a subsidiary of Norinco, the biggest arms manufacturer in, in, in China, and a, a holding, the Burmese military holding company, and a joint venture to, you know, to develop this copper mine. And there was another strong movement against this because they were destroying the environment, uh, <coughs> people were unhappy with it, when, when a lot of people had been you know, relocated to other places where they didn't want to live and so on. But when this happened, the government, uh, the government thought maybe it's gone a little bit too far. 
So Aung Min, the minister in the president's office, went to Lepadong. And he told the demonstrators there, there were thousands of village people demonstrating, that don't make all this noise because <clears throat> we are afraid of China. And if you continue like this, you know, demonstrating against China, the Chinese may arm the communists. Well, with the communists, he didn't mean the communists. He meant the United West State, United West State Army, which is uh, the largest ethnic army in the country, which grew out of the old Communist Party of Burma, but it's a different story. But the United West State Army has approximately 20,000 soldiers under its, under its command, equipped with the latest in Chinese weaponry you can possibly imagine. So what is this all about? China using <coughs> the big stick against the government. That if we move too, too close to the West, we will certainly arm the United West State Army. At the same time as they're waving the carrot, offering you know, loans and development schemes, putting on a much more you know, nicer face and so on, being much more diplomatic in his dealings with people in Burma. So, <coughs> what is then China's involvement in the civil war in Burma? I mentioned uh, the United West State Army, which has become more or less an extension of the People's Liberation Army. Uh, this is the Kachin Independence Army. They do not, contrary to popular beliefs, get any support from China. These rifles are made in their own gun factories. They do get ammunition from the war, it's indirectly from China, but they're not getting nearly as much you know, support as, 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 as the war. But <coughs> China, of course, has a good relationship with the KIA, but they don't really trust them because these are sort of Christian hill tribe people. Whereas the Wahs were much more closely on their side, historically, because of the past in the Communist Party. And the Chinese also had to be very careful in their dealings with the Kachins. Because you have a very large Kachin minority in Yunnan, about 150 to 200,000 people. And when there was in a very intense fighting up here between government forces and uh, the KIA, the Kachin Independence Army, in December 2012 and 2013, thousands of Kachins from China came up to the border to show their solidarity with the Kachins on the Burmese side. And it was actually more than this, but the police stopped most of the trucks that were on the way up to the border. This is directly on the border crossing on the Chinese side. On the other side is Lysa, the headquarters of the Kachin Independence Army. A lot of these people came up there to show their support. And China, as you know, is very sensitive when it comes to ethnic issues. There's nothing that they really want. You know, they have enough problems in Tibet and Xinjiang already. They don't want to have another problem in Yunnan. So they have to tolerate the Kachins in a way that they may not entirely happy with. Here again, Kachins coming in the traditional costumes on the Chinese side to show the support for the Kachins in the country. This is the other aspect of what happens is the things the government took over in March 2011. You hear a lot about a peace process, right? But there is no peace. When I covered the Burmese Civil War for more than 30 years, doesn't mean I know everything, but it means that I have a certain perspective. And the fighting since in the country, since the things the government took over in 2011, is the heaviest since the 1980s. There's more fighting now than ever before. And it began with an offensive against the Kachin in June 2011. That war is still continuing. And I brought an article here which could be very interesting. <coughs> They was followed by intense fighting in northern Shan state against the Palong, against the Kachin, against the Shan, and last year against Kokang. Kokang is a part of 
northeastern Shan states, which is on the Burma side of the border, and the people there I think Chinese. And there, fierce fighting broke out earlier last year. This article is from James Defense Weekly, one of the most authoritative defense journals in the world. The headline is, Tamado, the Burmeswami, la quietly launches largest war since Myanmar's independence. This is hardly what you associate with the peace process, is it? I was up in the Kachin State in December 2012. It was the first time the government used helicopter gunships and aircraft against an ethnic rebel force. And the fighting was certainly the most intense I had seen any time since the mid-1980s. So that is KIA, again with the homemade rifles. When the, the Bambisam attacked in June 2011, broke 17 years of ceasefire with the Kachins, I was told that Binang Lang, the commander chief of the Burmese army of Tamado, had said that, oh, I'll capture Lysa at the headquarters in three months, I'll wipe out the KIA in six months. That is now four and a half years ago. And nothing has really have changed the, <laughs> the situation there at all. Only that you have 100,000 internally displaced persons, which is basically refugees. People fled from their villages, from their homes, into camps. But, <clears throat> Then you have the United West State Army. Look at these weapons. They're not made in any local factory up in the mountains. This is the latest light infantry weapons you can get from China. And here, new uniforms, military equipment, and what sort? United West State Army. There, surface air missiles, HN-5As, the Chinese version of the SAM-7. And tanks. The United States Army must be the only rebel army in Asia, in the world, <laughs> that has its own tanks. Here, with the flags, one flag on it. I mean, this is not the kind of stuff that falls off the back of a truck. <clears throat> and it's not some black marketeer in Yunnan who's selling this on the side. That would be impossible. This is Chinese government policy. To arm and equip the war, to put pressure on the government of Burma so it doesn't move too close to the West. Here, this you're taking the China with the picture, but nevertheless, this is the model they have supplied to the United Western Army. This is from a war parade in Pangsan. Is this a guerrilla army? This is from Chashim, the leader of Kokang, who's spending most of his time in China, really. And he's the ethnic Chinese leader of this area in Kokang, where fighting erupted early last year. And here is his army. Look at the weapons. They didn't get them directly from the Chinese, they got it from the war. But it's part of China's policy. And here is pictures from the war in Kokang. This is the Burmese side firing, firing heavy artillery. Here. It's not peace, really. Peace process. Helicopter gunships in there. So the war is continuing. And it's heavier and more intense than it's been for many decades. And it's caused tens of thousands of people to flee, to flee from the war zones. This is in Ko near Kokang. This is a refugee camp on the Chinese side of the border. The Kachins have left China, they were pushed back by the Chinese. But the Kokang Chinese were allowed to stay. They were, you know, they were the same people and so on. The Chinese were given them favorable treatment compared to what, the way they treated the Kachis. You see the Chinese flag over the camp there. 
And here's the casualties. <clears throat> I believe that the Burmese Army suffered suffered heavy casualties in this war than at any time in the Civil War, since 1948. Thousands of troops have died. And this is in near Lashio. Officers being burned after the attacks on Kokan in March, April last year. Some of the weaponry that was used included um, Swedish-made Carl Gustav rockets, 84mm, which uh, the Burmese Army has acquired illegally from Singapore and India. More Swedish weaponry. This was captured by the Kokan rebels. This is the Carl Gustav rocket launcher, 84mm. It's a Kachin capture, I think, Kachin State. So you can see there's very heavy weapon to be used here, much more than at any time before in the Civil War. So the question, where do we go from here? Is any light at the end of the tunnel? I really don't know. All I can say is that Burma is entering a very important period in its history. Because what has changed all this is, of course, the election in November last year. Will it have an impact on this? It's too early to say. What can Aung San Suu Kyi do? Probably very little. Because what we're talking about here is a geopolitical power game which goes way beyond Burmese party politics. And in order to understand what's happening in Burma, what has happened in Burma over the past few years, what is likely to happen you know, over the next two or three years, you must put it into this geopolitical perspective and look at it beyond issues like human rights, democracy, elections inside Burma. Okay, thank you.